My name is Mark Valenzuela, and this is the first episode of Crest Conversations. Crest Conversations, along with our Medium blog, Keeping It 100 at TCU, is part of an attempt on behalf of the Department of Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies to create a counterculture space within our institution that centers the voices of Black, Indigenous, people of color, the LGBTQ community, and others that feel the structural impacts of social hierarchies on the basis of their identity. Both of these media outlets are meant to be student-led and will highlight mutual aid work, research, activist organizations, and any other important topics that contribute to uncovering the ways in which modern social organization might fail those in the margins and what might be done about it. As such, please feel free to contact us at tcu.cress.media at gmail.com if you or someone you know is doing important community-oriented work in Fort Worth. In this episode, Samiri, one of our Crest undergraduate assistants, and I interviewed Dr. Esti Hernandez. In this episode, we talked about her research, her role as an educator at TCU, graduation, and being non-white at a primarily white institution. All right. So we are here with the one and only Dr. Esti Hernandez. And so we're going to have you tell the folks a little bit about yourself, and then we're going to jump straight into the podcast. All right, thanks. Um, so I teach on an adjunct basis here at TCU at the John B. Roach Honors College, as well as with Comparative Race and Ethnic Studies, or CRESS, particularly with the Latinx Studies courses. Um, so peep game, I am teaching an intro Latinx Studies class in this fall. So if you have not registered, you should. Um, I am super excited to be here. I um, earned my doctorate from Florida State in 2019. And so immediately after that, I moved back here, back home. And I was like, I'll figure out the job situation as I'm able to. And got a call that said we needed people to teach these classes. And I've been here ever since. I'm originally from uh, the Rio Grande Valley. So the, the Valley girl, really proud of that. Still have my 956 number um, because I do feel that that's something that I carry with me and a really important community responsibility, right? Like. Um, being a first-gen student, being uh, remembering what it was like to immigrate, um, and also being the oldest sibling um, has also just carries a significant weight. And it's not a responsibility that I take lightly, but it's also a burden that I welcome, right? Uh, recognizing that I'm not just here for myself, but for our communities as well. Yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. So the first segment is the question of the day. The way that this works is that Mark and I have compiled a list of interesting and great icebreaker questions for our esteemed guests to be able to answer. These range from light and jovial things like, what is something you were prolifically bad at, <laughs> all the way to what's the last thing that you Googled? So with that said, we're going to go into our handy dandy bag, which for now it's a non-physical bag, uh, <laughs> number randomizer, but one day there will be a real bag with the questions inside. <laughs> all right, and we are going. One to 66. Generate. Today we got question number 44. What are two truths and one lie about you? Oh, so we're going to play this game. Uh, yeah. Okay, 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 okay. I already uh, you like right after waking up. <laughs> yeah, so All right. said one lie. Okay. Um, um, okay, well we'll, well, we'll theme it. Okay, so. Um, my first language is Spanish. Um, I speak French. I speak Russian. Ooh. Ooh. And you never know. 
You do never know. I would say speak French. I do speak French. I do speak French. I don't know if you were saying that as like you were just thinking out loud or if yeah. Yeah. Because I'm thinking about phrases. I'm conversational in French. So I re- but that's cheating if I pull that card. You know what? I'm gonna just <laughs> that, was that, was that, was, that was your answer. That was your that was your answer. I yeah, no. say, I have a little bit of an advantage, but I'll say I'll say Russian. I'm gonna go with the Russian too, because we're not really that touching is not, that. That is not fair. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't speak Russian. Um I did take a semester of it um as an undergrad because I just wanted to learn. Yeah, but it, it fell out of like it, my consciousness. It's a difficult language to grasp. <laughs> That's why I was more privy to that. When you can call bluff on Spanish or French very easily, but Russian is difficult. They're not really teaching it to anyone. <laughs> yeah. French, you know, has a lot of weird rules I've heard. Like it has so many weird rules. Like yeah. there, um, each noun is, and so if you speak like a uh, romance language, like Spanish, yeah. whatever, like it's they're either masculine or feminine. All nouns are. In Russian, they're either feminine, masculine, or neutral. Um, And they may change gender um, when they change tense. So it's it's a lot. And then it's very easy to insult someone from what I've been told. Oh, I don't know about that. I'm not that advanced, but I do remember. (laughs) I was like, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, but there are also no articles, like no thes, a's, and mm-hmm. in, in Russian, which was really nice. Um, I was very excited about that. But again, I only took it for a semester. <laughs> I mean, that's super dope that you even took the initiative to do that, though. So, great. Yeah, I want to be a student, and like I came in with a whole bunch of credits, and I didn't want to graduate early. I was like, well, I've got time. Um, let me take opportunity to learn something that I wouldn't otherwise actually seek out the opportunity to learn. Right. That's what was my motivation. So I will say that, like, it's a piece of advice to students, like, especially for those of y'all who came in with, you know, an associate's degree and all that. I think that we place a lot of pressure on, on students to, like, know what you're supposed to do after you graduate. And that's a really triggering question for a lot of folks. And, you know, for one, it's okay to, like, just be like, I don't know. Right. Or I try to frame the question as like, oh, so what are you doing after you like in the summer? Like, do you have any plans or so I try to like soften the question a little bit, but know that you can always change your mind. Right. Um, And you don't have to know all the answers. And so if part of that is like, well, I don't want to graduate early because I don't really know what I want to do immediately after I graduate. Just take a whole bunch of random classes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, mean, what you said about um, after graduating from your um, doctoral program about like kind of seeing what's out there kind of taking it as it comes um, I mean that really resonated with me because I'm graduating in May and you know I've gotten a lot of those questions um, mostly from either peers or from my family and it's like the way that I kind of look at it it's like um, I'm kind of just searching and like seeing what's out there because you know I can't know exactly what's going to be out there um, there could be like this random job that I'm like wow this seems perfect like this seems like something that I'd really love to do um, and so that's kind of how I'm approaching it as well like just like seeing what's out there so and I think that there's something really freeing about that there isn't any pressure and also you get to celebrate the fact that you're graduating because that in and of itself is an accomplishment. Let's not forget. I think that there's a lot of pressure on students like, well, well, if I'm not graduating with a job, then it's like not that serious or like it's not that, 
you shouldn't be as proud, but the accomplishment of graduating in and of itself is a point of pride, folks, especially for those of us for whom that was not a possibility, like in our families prior to us, right? And so it, that is worth celebrating in and of itself. Imposter, imposter syndrome is real out here. I mean, so real. Celebrate all of our all of our accomplishments. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's important to keep in mind. But yeah, wow. Well, Mark, are you ready to? I mean, I, I wish I could, we could wrap there. That, that that was the pearl. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. We, can, we can get into it. Um, so um, now that we've gotten a little more information about who you are, what you do. Um, we'll go ahead and get into like kind of activism and organizing um, within the context of higher education. So um, within the context of your institutional roles. Um, so the first question is going to be based off of what I read um, based off your bio on your website. I found your website. Oh, <laughs> I hope it's not creepy, but <laughs> I read it. And it's there, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but what are some of the most prominent systems of oppression facing students of color in higher education that you've noticed in your research? How do they function to keep students of color from entering higher education or kind of what types of barriers do they put in front of them just in general? Um, so I've taught like, you know, social justice type classes for ooh, a very long time. Mm -hmm. And one student um, it's like, oh, Dr. Hernandez, like everything for her is about white supremacy at the end of the day. <laughs> um, and I thought that was a big compliment because I'm like, take away for you. Um, because I do think that, um, I do think that white supremacy isn't a lot of what we do. And when I say that, when I'm talking about white supremacy, uh, yes, they're the obvious like Ku Klux Klan, the Proud Boys, like all these examples are pretty obvious, right? But when I'm talking about white supremacy, I'm talking about the ways that we have normed whiteness as a standard. Uh, and that that is like the achievable, um, the what we want to achieve towards, right? Mm -hmm. And that is everywhere in higher education. And that is by design because you have to think about, well, as a higher education scholar, I know that higher education was designed for rich white clergymen, like mm -hmm. hundreds of years ago when there were still 13 colonies, right? And yes, now you have more sophisticated majors like comparative race and ethnic studies. But at the same time, like you still wear the same regalia at graduation, the structures, the foundational structures of higher education have stayed the same, right? And so that is, I think, something that we really need to think about, like the ways that the reward systems that we have in higher education, the grading systems we have in higher education, the promotional systems we have for faculty, administrators, et cetera, all of the, those are white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And they don't take into account cultural values that really support and affirm people that look like us. And that's something that I try to uncover in ways that are accessible <laughs> to white leaders, right? Because, you know, if you tell people that, then they're like, whoa, it completely rocks their world. And quite <laughs> frankly, I don't know if you've noticed, but at TCU, we're at a predominantly white institution, right? Yeah. And so, um, and in situations such as these, it is important that we identify allies, allies who are actually allies and are doing the work um, and folks that you can trust and communicate that up because, I mean, we don't have to go very far to recognize like white people tend to be at the type of the hierarchy here. Mm -hmm. And so if you can get allies who are willing to learn and listen and who are trustworthy and communicate like, hey, why don't we grade assignments differently? Or has anyone thought about, you know, how we might structure majors in a way that is more supportive of students? Or 
you know, things like that, that you can communicate and get it to an audience that will actually hear you and can actually make change happen. That's really important. Uh, yeah. But I do think that the ways that we have structured systems of white supremacy here in higher education is probably the most uh, significant and most obvious to me form of oppression or system of oppression that we have here in higher education. Um, but you can talk about social class also. I think that's especially um, obvious at in institutions such as ours, where it is a private institution, obviously it's cost prohibitive for a lot of students unless you're here on scholarship. Um, we are at TCU significantly underrepresented in terms of proportion of first generation students and low income students here. And that's by virtue of, of course, tuition, et cetera. And it is the way it is. I'm not telling folks we should switch to be in a public school, but it's important that like, okay, if we're gonna be a private school, how can we bolster programs like community scholars and offer them more money and more scholarships so that students who are deserving can be here. Um, so I will say that class is also something that's uh, significant because higher education is exclusive by its very design as well. You have to apply, you have to take the SAT, you have to be able to pay tuition. And so like, there's all these barriers to entry that are important to think about. Yeah, that's, that was great. Um, this actually goes perfectly to the next question that I had, which was um, higher education has historically been a means of status acquisition and still continues to be a source of clout for many well-off students whose parents basically pay their way in, get them the necessary tutoring to do well on standardized tests like the SAT, and so on and so on. How do you wage between potentially validating the idea that people need to go to college considering its ties to status and wealth and wanting to encourage young people to make a quality life for themselves? Um, uh, <laughs> I know that I just said that I'm a higher education scholar. Um, but I don't think everybody has to go to college. Um, I think that it should be a choice. Like if you, I think students should go to college if they wanna be in a place to learn. And of course, if you need the license to do whatever it is you wanna do. Like if you wanna be a lawyer, it's like, well, you kind of have to go to college, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I am the first in my family to go to college, but I'm, I'm, I mean, I also have siblings who chose not to, right? And I think that that's an important recognition of, of their own agency. Like this is not a choice for me and then being affirmed in that way. Like my parents didn't put pressure on them. Like, okay. So it's not for everyone and it doesn't need to be a status symbol, but it is. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Mark, that um, foundationally education is an enterprise that indoctrinates. Um, like, because as professors, hey, we have a power of choosing what y'all learn and what y'all read in the classroom. Like. We have the power of grading your assignments. We have the power of assigning a grade based on what we think the work that you did. Um, we have the power of creating policies like, you know, class participation and all this other stuff. Like, you know, it is, and if you don't abide and if you don't have, feel like you have the opportunity to speak against these policies that you feel aren't right, mm -hmm. too bad for you, right? <laughs> so it is, a, it, is a, it is an enterprise that indoctrinates, let's be clear. And so, excuse me, it is important also that those of us who are in positions of power as professors, as administrators recognize that power and don't abuse it and do as best as we can to flatten that, um, that, that hierarchy or flatten those dimensions of power. So um, for instance, something that I do in my classes is instead of like your conventional class participation, as a class, we come up with a list of like community standards of like, how are we gonna behave in this class? It's like, okay, well, don't be rude. Okay, well, what does rude look like, right? Um, don't yell at one another. Like, 
things like that. And we come up with a class together. And I'm like, this is how we're gonna determine class participation. If you're doing these things, you get credit. I'm like, okay. Um, and so that's a way that I feel that students could have agency over what their grades look like if they're able to determine effectively what the rubric is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's important that professors make moves like that in order to create spaces that are more constructive, more freeing, and also more student-centered. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that sounds really powerful because um, especially as students at a primarily white institution, it can be hard to kind of participate in some classes and participate in the way that maybe some professors want um, when you're like a student of color or somebody with a marginalized identity because, um, you know, there's always that fear of being judged for like what you think and um, who you are and, you know, people kind of make these um, assumptions about you based on maybe the way that you look, the way that you act, the things that you say. And um, it's harder for those people um, compared to like whenever, especially whenever they're in a classroom full of um, people who are just not like them. And so um, those types of approaches, I think, um, are some of the best. And I've actually had a class before that um, has experimented, I guess, with like grading scales. And so it was a writing class and the professor um, basically grades based on um, the work that you kind of put into it rather than like the quality because I think the way that um, they kind of uh, justified it was just a lot of the times um, students are getting these educations like um, before they come to college and what she wants to do is facilitate learning rather than you know um, kind of patting on the back for like what maybe the resources that you've had before you entered um, higher education so yeah that, that was great. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a great way of doing that. I I have I have found that the most in the classes where students are asked to write, like I have found that grading um, growth mm -hmm. is probably a better measurement, a better metric, because some students do have had the benefit of really excellent English teachers that have taught them the mechanics of writing or what have you, right? And some may have not, right? And so like, well, are you demonstrating that you've grown? Mm -hmm. And that's that's something that I try to keep account of in, in the classes that I teach as well. Um, I personally am like super introverted. Um, I, I have to speak because that's my role, right? But uh, after class, I'm just like out. Like I don't talk <laughs> for a long time because I've just spent, you know, hours talking. Yeah. And I'm thankful that my partner understands that um, because my partner conversely is extroverted. And... Um, <laughs> And so he gets a lot of energy from the classroom. I mean, we, we're both educators. So, um, and so when I was a student, I never talked because I wasn't an external processor. I would process inside. Like if you asked me one-on-one, -on -one, I'd be like, oh, and la 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 la, and this is what I think. And I didn't, I didn't like the way that class participation was structured in that way. I didn't think that was a supportive for students who communicated or learned differently. Also, as you were saying, Mark, like in terms of, of students that don't look like us, right? I think imposter syndrome, which you were saying right off the jump of this conversation, it's true. Like, well, what if my idea isn't even that good? Like, I better not say it, right? And you have all of these like messages externally and internally that tell you like, maybe you shouldn't speak up. And unless you're weighing that, <laughs> uh, it's not really fair. Those policies are really not fair to students of color, to first-gen students, to low-income students, et cetera. So, and also, it feels like, I mean, participation rates is something that literally feel made up. Like, an hierarchy of things that don't feel real. <laughs> like, 
I don't know. And it almost feels passive aggressive in a lot of ways. Like there's one class I'm currently and we're not shading anybody. I am very heavily active in it, but my camera is never on. So my participation grade is an 87. Oh. And it's like, what? But, you know, it, I think these are the kind of things that like we have to weigh in these conversations that we have in these spaces. How to structure that in an equitable way, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I think that's beautiful. The models that Mark discusses well as what you're doing in class. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and talk about um, maybe some of your, I guess, um, uh, participation in like maybe organizing or social justice um, organizations. I know I think I read on your bio that you were, um, I guess, active in some of those. So I don't know if you want to talk about those. Um, so I'm in a lot of things. Um, I um, I would say that um, in the organizations that I'm a part of or that I um, give my time to are, or all have in common is they are recognizing the inequities that are present in these spaces and they're doing their part to solve them, right? Um, and so in those ways, I do think that they are activist spaces. Um, so the first being, uh, I'm part of Sisters of the Academy, which is an organization dedicated to advancing Black women through graduate school and into the professoriate. So like getting faculty jobs, getting tenure, um, moving up in administrative ranks, et cetera, because Black women are severely underrepresented in terms of overall population mm -hmm. in these ranks. And as y'all know, like if there are people who don't look like you and they're making decisions about you, right. um, it's not going to be, it's not good, right? And so what is it about um, both getting Black women through the door, but helping them be successful and thriving and not selling their soul and things like that? Um, I am not Black. Um, I know that this will be an audio podcast, um, and so I wanted to make clear, um, but my dissertation advisor is a co-founder of the organization She's a Black Woman, and effectively like strong-armed me into helping because I was like, I'm not going to go into a space that isn't for me, right? Like, I'm not, that's not, I'm not going to do that. But she really wanted me to be part of it, and it has been an organization that has given me a lot of air, right? To just walk into a space with highly educated Black women is just like really emotionally overwhelming um, because it's not, those spaces aren't common unless you go to like an HBCU, for example. And even then you'll come to find that a lot of faculty there are white. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if you know anything about HBCUs, but that's also a problem in and of itself. <laughs> um, so it's just a really powerful space. And so uh, for me, my role in that space, I'm not really like it in like a formal leadership role, so to speak, but in the cohorts that I've been a part of has been checking on, on my full fellow sisters and making sure that we all graduated, right? Like, how can yeah. I help you? Do you need me to read a draft? Do you need me to recruit participants for you? Do you need me to read your interview protocol? Like the list of questions you're gonna ask, like, what do you need me to do? And just being a sister in that way, like make, we were all gonna graduate dadgummit. And so that was, that was my role in that because if we could, doors open once you have those letters behind your name, um, at least administratively. I will say that when you go to the grocery store, people will still treat you like a black person or a Latinx person. And that was like a huge humbling wake up call for me. Um, but I mean, having those name, those letters behind your name is really important. And so if I can do my part in that, that's what I'm gonna do. Um, but sistersoftheacademy.org is an organization for black women who are thinking about going into graduate programs and are looking to not feel alone. I would highly recommend that. Um, 
I am also a part of Team First and Goal. So First and Goal is an organization that's um, really created for um, low-income first-generation kids to get into higher education. So we work primarily with Aldine ISD in the Houston area and helping students get like um, the education they need to be able to fill out FAFSA, to uh, be able to choose the right college for them, to identify funding sources, to learn the lingo, like what is a major, what is a minor, like all these things that we take for granted that are not like common lingo among first-generation students is what we do. And as a consequence, we work with primarily with Black students, right, and Latinx students um, and helping them identify degrees. It's a, I've been working with First and Goal since 2008, and it's been really wild to see some of my former protégés graduate with like advanced degrees. That's really wild, um, but it's also a really like a wonderful moment. A number of them have graduate degrees, a number of them have doctorates, and so it's oh. really cool. Um, and then I also work with, I'm also on, um, on the national board for Capital Tokai Sorority Incorporated. It is a Latina sorority, um, which again, has been founded as a consequence of, oh, we weren't allowed to be in these predominantly white spaces and these very white spaces. So let's make our own space, right? Sure. Um, Greeks of color are, are spaces that were created in response to being excluded from such spaces, but wanting these experiences. And um, I advocate for, especially at an institution like TCU, where it is a very Greek institution, uh, um, to look into spaces like um, NPHC, MGC organizations um, that maybe more accurately represent who you are in terms of ethnicity or race um, and uplift these organizations. I'm not gonna be like, oh, just look at my squad, look at the squad that's best for you, right? Or if you're like Greek life is not for me, um, how can you and your organizations partner with these organizations so that they have an increased voice here and an increased presence on campus? Um, because when we think about Greek life, we think about white. And this is one of those ways that we are white supremacists, right? Like we norm white organizations instead of thinking about the National Panhellenic Council that has been around for just as long and has an important legacy and yet we, it's something that we overlook. So how can we in our organizations um, center them and their experiences because they are just as valid. Is your org um, represented at TCU? Um, uh, yes, um, I was part of the educational team that initiated 13 wonderful fans and women that um, are now part of the, like you call like the chartering group. Um, mm -hmm. And so right now they're working on establishing a chapter here on campus, but they are sisters. Um, and it was a two-year process of just like identifying um, women and femmes who would be interested and able. And um, so it's been a long time coming for these wonderful students and I'm very proud of them. Um, but right now we're working on getting them admission into MGC. But I am a fan of all the organizations here on campus. Um, and I wanna make that clear, right? Because I think that some of us are like, oh, we don't like so-and-so because of whatever, but um, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that that kind of looks like we're fighting for the lowest rung here. <laughs> like, right. Are you aware that there's only like five members in our chapter and that nobody but us cares about this stuff, right? Um, it's really important that we recognize that we can do so much more in solidarity. And so that's a message that I would have for all Greeks on campus, particularly those of color, is to continue to work alongside one another so that you can really create moves on campus. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these like supportive spaces with both organizations, because um, even um, 
uh, Katie Kai, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I have one friend who graduated at my last institution before I transferred here, and she's a really good friend. And now she's doing her PhD out um, and doing like some clinical work, some psychological clinical work. Um, it's great. <laughs> but um, yeah, so these supportive spaces where, you know, people can kind of find community and like also find kind of um, the support to continue and get themselves to graduation, I think are really important because a lot of the discussions I think that people have about like, um you know people getting funding like especially students of color getting funding um to um like institutions like this it's like they get the funding and then they can say you know look we have this population like we 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 do right. the work and then they kind of drop them no support nothing and just kind of set them up for for failure basically and mm -hmm. so um yeah i think that you know your involvement in these organizations is really great thank you <laughs> it's i mean it's important to get your uh, get you behind spaces that you are believe in right and organizations that you believe in and so um for y'all it's like okay well i'm just trying to graduate and that's okay but what are organizations both here on campus and in the community that you can get your support behind and um even if you can't support financially, how can you support in terms of human power, right? Like, um, well, I'm really good at social media or I'm really good at using Canva or I'm really good at like spreading the word around. What can I do so that I can move these issues forward? So I think that that's something that I've tried to do. Like what are organizations that I believe in and, and what can I do to help? Yeah, uh, that kind of involvement like really, really matters, especially um, from a student standpoint, seeing like faculty and staff that prioritizes our visibility is like really, really great to see, especially at a PWI. Can't state that enough. Yeah, so um, I did a little bit of research on your website, much like Mark did, because apparently everyone's creeping out here these days. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that you talked about more or less was um, Chicanas in doctoral spaces and their online presence. Mm -hmm. What kind of made you uh, kind of focus or hone in on that? Um, so it was, um, I don't know who I heard this from, so like don't quote me or you can say that it was anonymous, but I think those of us who do research, research what we know, right? Mm -hmm. And, as, you know, we have like an intimate relationship with this, like even folks like in the sciences, like I remember students who were like, oh, well, I'm studying like, um, you know, endometriology and type one diabetes, because I have type one diabetes, and that's important to me, you know, so like we tend to study what we know. And for me, I was the only Latinx person in my doctoral program for a very long time. It wasn't until I intentionally recruited my friends to come to my institution, was I the only one, right? I'm like, my institution needs to cut me a check for getting these wonderful scholars here, but I digress. <laughs> um, and But yet I was still the only Chicana, Chicanx person um, in the program. And so what I found was really helpful was creating communities online. You know, folks that I would meet at like conferences, at like academic spaces or through people, whatever. And then just like following them on IG or following them on Twitter and following up with them in the next opportunity where, you know, conference or whatever. And these were, these, this was the way that I created community virtually when I couldn't do that in physical spaces with people who knew what I was going through. This is how I identified mentors. This is how I identified, you know, just like groups of people who were gonna get each other through the finish line, right? And I think that, you know, for all that, you know, social media is fraught with its problems, you know, I'm not gonna sit here and, and talk about 
that I'd also present an opportunity for us to create communities when it's not possible in person. And so that's really what motivated my scholarship. Um, I also based empirically, we know that in social media, because you have fewer gatekeepers, in other words, like, yes, you might have um, racist peers in your classes or, you know, but you don't have to be friends with them on IG, right? So you kind of create these boundaries for yourself. And when you do that, you feel like you can be more yourself on Instagram. Like, oh, well, if I'm gonna make my Instagram private, I'm only gonna allow certain folks to follow me, then that means that I can be more myself. And so it's powerful in that way, especially at a place like, like a, a PWI, a very like PPPPWI. Um, right. And that is why I think that social media can be really powerful. It can be a really important tool for like self-actualization, for self-agency. And mm -hmm. that is really why I focused on that. Like how are these women and femmes um, using social media as a tool for their activism when, you know, physical spaces aren't there for them. Physical spaces don't give them that opportunity. Okay. Yeah, I, I saw you had mentioned like kind of in your bio that you're focused on like the disembodiment on social media. And I was kind of curious as to like what you meant on the exact wording on that because it's a very strong word choice. And I know that was intentional. So like, um, can you give us a little bit of insight into like what this looks like in actual practice? Sure. So, okay. Um, uh, my theor I use a theoretical framework of Coyle Shockley, who is um, an, an Aztec deity. Um, I'm not really going to go into that, but um, it's a theory that's used by a lot of Chicana feminists like Cherry Moraga, um, more recently like Cindy Cruz, um, that really talks about, and, and I think it's applicable to a lot of folks, not necessarily students of color, but other minoritized communities. Uh, of the ways that you might feel fragmented or disembodied in higher education, but because in many ways you're walking through the door and you're expected to leave your identities at the door. Like you're expected mm. to not to like put on a pretty face, even though you know you might be sending money home, or you know, your parents might not know that you're out, um, or you present gender differently in classes than you do at home. Or like there are so many like barriers that we as professors or we as administrators have to really be conscientious of that our students are having to navigate. Um, and we also as, as administrators are too, but, and so that's what they meant by fragmented, like higher education is piecing apart our bodies in ways that like are not sustainable, right? And so how are we reassembling these pieces back together, right? Like how are we working to be fully ourselves in spite of these like fractures, right? And so when I talked about it on social media, um, so some of the stories that I would hear from some of the, the testimonialistas, the women and femmes that like contributed to my work, it was like, well, like I'm job searching. So I kind of have to tone it down a little bit or I had to make my Twitter private for like this job search because I didn't want this, like an opportunity, like a missed opportunity because of my politic or whatever. And so, the surveillance state, right? We were talking about of the ways that you don't know who's looking at your stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to be really careful. That sucks because effectively you're diminishing parts of yourself, parts that are important to you out of necessity. And I'm not, I'm not like, you know, it's not these, it's not our fault. Like we're just a consequence of the system, right? Um, so I'm not necessarily like not giving these women and fans a pass, but at the same time, it's just the reality that we have to work under, right? And so that's what I meant by disembodied. Like how is like the external gaze, how are others in positions of power looking at our stuff 
in ways that diminish us, that flatten the dynamics of who we are, and in a ways not letting us be fully ourselves, you know? Yeah. And so that's, I think that that's relatable to like anyone who's really thinking about like, oh, what am I gonna post on social media? What am I gonna, what, what is my caption gonna look like and how will it be received by whoever looks at it? Yeah, it's pretty scary to think about this like invisible technology of like, um, like, suppression and like um because this is very like much like abstract like we're kind of thinking in abstract terms like this somebody is going to look at like this potential job um employer is going to look at my stuff like see you know maybe i'm posting stuff about um my politics and they're not going to like that and yeah i mean that yeah that was great yeah well i one of the most important parts of any kind of representation is perception. And I think that's the weirdest part of it all, thinking about how we are perceived. Like, I constantly joke about this. I'm like, I would love to be in politics someday, but they know how to search Twitter. <laughs> and it's like, you know, as much as of a joke as that is, that is a reality for someone. We see people get famous and people go all the way back to the very beginning of them having Twitter and like find comments where we weren't as informed and stuff like that. And it's a very wild thing. Because, I don't know, being held accountable for things you said when you were, like, 12 or 13 is that's a wild thing to receive. But jobs look at this stuff. Institutions sometimes look at this. I know um, they, one of the, or not one of, the Greek organization that I tried to join, they search, like, you know, your Twitter and stuff like that to see what the kind of stuff you're about. And they do extensive background checks. So it's interesting to think about how, like, people have to think about the politics of representing themselves in an online space. Almost like cutting off intersections that form who they are. Yeah. yeah, oddly interesting. Yeah, and I validate folks who are like, well, I'm going to put my stuff out there just as I am, and I don't want to work in a place that doesn't appreciate me for the fullness of who I am. But that in and of itself is a privilege, right? Like, yes. um, to be able to say that because maybe, you know, financially you have some fallbacks or, you know, um, your identity presents in such a way that is palatable. Like I, I know that like I have privileges like a white passing Latinx person, right? Or I don't know that I'm white passing in such a way, but I do have very fair skin, right? Like it's like it's like pink, right? And so, <laughs> um, and so I know that I can get away with certain stuff, right? Yeah. And so I have to be conscientious. I am one of those folks that's like, well, I'm gonna talk the way I talk, and if people don't like it, well, that's okay. They don't have to follow my page. But I know that I can say that. And I know that some colleagues may have a harder time saying that. And that's okay too, right? And so just like people make the best choices they can with the information that they've got. And it is what it is, right? Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. I don't know, like social media does so much to connect us, but it does a heck of a lot more to divide us, especially right now. Like I constantly find myself in the crosshairs of Nazis accidentally by commenting on certain people's tweets. And it's like, how do y'all find me? Every time, like Mark is the smarter of the two of us, he's private. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, no, you're private. Like, for me, it's like it's very interesting. I think, um, social media, us being exposed to this, has some kind of a long term effect that we don't know, even if it's just in how we communicate with each other because anonymity does things. So, yeah, like. I'm, I'm very interested in like what the longitudinal effects on how we communicate with each other as human beings are going to look with this after we really sit down, especially in a world with a pandemic going on. Because once we go back to in the, like face-to-face interaction and stuff like that, like are we going to be talking like we do in, in memes almost, dare I say, or, 
you know, using TikTok lingo and stuff like that in real conversation is wild to think about. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. I think that these are places that are um, rich or the opportunities of like learning about and research and stuff, because I think it's really important. I completely agree with you, Samiria, just of like how are how are communication patterns changing? How are social dynamics changing um, on account of social media in these spaces? Yeah. Okay, well, um, um, so we'll go ahead and not take much more of your time and go ahead and ask like a concluding question um, that I think will kind of tie together everything. Um, but what advice would you give to students right now dealing with the struggles that relate to being a student of color in a primarily white institution like TCU? Ah, so many, so many things to advice. I would say uh, self-preserve first and foremost. Um, like, and when I say that, I mean like choose your battles. You don't have to pick every single battle. I think that some of us think that we have to because if we don't do it, then who else will? Um, but if you do all the things, then you give the university an excuse to not admit more students like you. Mm. And so I, I, it's really important, like you can't pour into a cup, into other people's cups when your cup is empty. And so if you need to unplug, if you need to step away from social media for a little bit, if you need to like not be social for a little bit, you know, like you just need your rest. You, that's, it is totally okay to put yourself first. I mean, we are seeing an onslaught of think, talking about social media, like now violence on our bodies is way more visible all the time, right? And um, that's, that's draining, right? Um, and debilitating. And so in whatever ways you need to unplug and step away, definitely do that first, because I think it is rude. I think it is rude the ways that we're expected to continue to participate in this world in spite of all this violence, right? Like. I'm, you know, like I, sometimes I go into class and I'm like, y'all, I'm really tired because, mm -hmm. you know, like this trial is happening and it's like overwhelming, right? And so I try to be honest, you know, about those things. And so in whatever ways you need to like set boundaries up for yourself and not participate in certain things, definitely do that, especially towards the end of the semester when you really need to like put your thinking caps on and, and get to work, right? Um, I would say that finding communities is really important. If they're student organizations, if they're groups of friends, like finding your little like oases, right, um, is really important. Um, in um, Chicanx uh, cultures and stuff, we talk about Aslan and Aslat being this like utopian space where we could be fully ourselves. And it's, it's if you read about it, it's, it's fraught with its problems, right? But like, what are your little like, utopias that you can create on campus, um, whether it's a professor or two that you trust, um, it's your peer support group, your student organization, where are the spaces that you can create? So when things get too hard, you have those spaces to fall back on and people that you can vent to and that will be there for you no matter what. And I would say, um, take classes in Cress. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like every time I see a student of color, at least like I, that's a presumption, right? Cause I don't know how students identify, right? But like, I'm like, have you taken a cross class? Um, Cause I think, you know, a lot of us we're from homes like, oh, we have to have a business degree or we have to have like, uh, you know, a degree that's like lucrative when we graduate. And I get that. I mean, our parents, you know they advise us in the best ways that they can. But, you know, I think cross classes are important because effectively they're 
it charged with undoing the 18 whatever many years of terrible education that has erased us from history, mm -hmm. right? And so learning about yourself in books and in history is really powerful, especially in combating internalized oppression and uh, imposter syndrome and all the things that y'all were talking about. And so if you can find a way to take a class, class you don't change your major, although you might want to afterwards. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it could make your finance classes a little bit more palatable, right? Um, yeah. To know that you're not alone in this struggle. So I would say that as well. So many pieces of advice, but I'm gonna stop there. Ooh, wow, but that last one is the most important. Like I always tell people that I did not choose the, the correct program. I felt like it chose me. I was off minding my business on the other side of the world, basically a sociology major. And I found myself coming back to like this area and the Crest department was the first time I had been excited about school since I had to go back. And like, that was such a wild thing for me, like seeing students wanting to fight to have this as a major, not just the major, the classes in and of itself invigorated me almost and like, Having been in these classes, these are some of the blackest and brownest spaces on the entire campus. So like, I, I, I almost got tricked to an extent because I saw all these people of color in my crest classes and went to non-crest sports and I was like, wait, you go to TCU. Like, I almost forgot that I was at a PWI <laughs> for a second having tricked in these fields. So like, I don't know. And it's also giving me access to like community in a different way than I would have thought. I've met so many great people being in this department. Like it really has made my whole TCU experience work. And even if it feels like I'm paying like nine times the price to go to the University of Phoenix. <laughs> 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 yeah, take a crest class. Don't be a degenerate. Yeah, take a crest class. You do, you do forget because it's like, whoa, I forgot that I'm at TCU because all these mm -hmm. people look like me. It's, it's yeah. really cool. And, and that's one of those like, you know, little utopian places that I'm talking about. Like, you know, sometimes it could be a classroom. Yeah. It was so, it was so surprising to me to find these spaces and like find that they're actually like being created as like these like radical spaces that are like really mm -hmm. welcoming and inviting. And it's like at TCU, what? That's here. So encourage everybody to like take a class, like see what it's like, kind of see. Um, you know, what's out there, what the topics are, and yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hernandez. I was happy to help y'all. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I look forward to continuing to support students in Chris and beyond at TCU. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's it for this episode. Everyone drink water, respect women, be safe. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs>